Off the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I am not in the Score Studios. I am at home talking to my fellow co-host in his home, Joe Wolfon. How's it going, man? Well, just another day in this crazy world. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, the same, I guess. It's like you always got to throw qualifiers, I think, uh, on any way that you want to frame your own personal mood. Like, I... I think like everybody kind of have good days and bad days, but taking a holistic approach to what's going on in the world, I think we're all feeling a little bit of unrest for better or worse. I mean, I think there are a lot of positives and maybe encouraging signs to take out of the the movement that is sweeping the world right now. But of, of course, we're also in the middle of a global pandemic and aren't living our lives the way that we might otherwise be so it's just different i guess and it's uh it's getting used to things being different and feeling different and i think that's okay yeah um in today's episode uh at the end of the podcast uh, we'll have a short interview i did with ryan sadu who was the director of um a docuseries called true north inside the rise of toronto basketball almost like a modern toronto version of hoop dreams it was really well done, and it's um, it's being it's been turned into a ninety minute cut uh, that is now available. And since this weekend is the one year anniversary of the Raptors winning the championship, it's been turned into this cut to kind of focus, you know, continue the focus on the rise of Toronto and Canada basketball. I think it's a great watch for basketball fans in general. Don't think you have to be from Toronto or Canada. So I'll speak with him, the director of that docu series, uh, at the end of the pod. Uh, but first, we got some basketball ish news to talk about. Let's start it with this, which may not be nice for the NBA, and it's something that uh, we've worried about the whole time. Adrian Wojnarowski reported earlier this week that there are a group of players, and it sounds like a pretty decent-sized group. I think the reports were that the, the conference call had like over 50 people on it or something. But anyway, that these players have some reservations about joining the Orlando bubble. So let's start there. How Not that it matters, you know, basketball in the grand season but how concerned are you that we're not going to have basketball or that the NBA's grand plans might be disrupted by the fact that some players just don't want to go yeah I mean I I wouldn't use the word concerned because I don't think that basketball should happen I've been pretty clear about that for the last few weeks and like I've said the whole time like I think if they can pull it off and do it safely then great I just I don't have a lot of faith that that's going to happen and it sounds like a lot of players are in that same boat And I think, I guess where the concern might come in is how is that disagreement going to play out within the players union? Because they had, you know, essentially a proxy vote where the union passed the proposal that had initially been agreed upon by the league's board of governors. And if there are players in the union who don't feel that their voices were represented in that vote, then... Uh, I, I think that's going to be cause for some infighting potentially. And that said, I mean, the according to Woj's reporting, the league is not going to force any players to to go into the bubble that don't want to be there. And whether whether they have you know pre existing conditions or whether they're immunosuppressed or not, I think if, if players have reservations for whatever reason, they'll be allowed to stay home. Woj also reported though that if those players don't play, then they will have their pay docked. Like they won't get paid for those games, which I don't know. I, I, I guess, how do you feel about that? 
because as it is, like, you know, so there are these eight teams that aren't going to be there, but I think we both assume that there is going to be a revenue sharing structure that allows those players to get paid out for the remainder of the regular season and whatever TV revenue is generated from those uh, remaining, what was it, 88 games? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if those players are getting paid, you know, they're all getting the same prorated salary, essentially. But the players who refuse to play when they're supposed to be in the bubble are going to have their pay dock for the games that they miss, then that to me creates uh, an imbalance that could be caused for some conflict. Yeah, um, that's the way I understand it. And and I would assume that then, I don't know, like the, the players that refuse to go, are they almost treated like the players on the teams that aren't in the bubble? Were they they receive some of that revenue. You're like, I'm not sure how it would work. Or is it different in their case because they have the option to play and get their full salary and they're choosing not to. I don't know. I also don't know how I feel about it. Like, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think the NBA has already made clear that there won't be like those players won't be punished in any way. You know, there's not going to be like fines outside of that for the way they're usually would, for example, if you just didn't report to your team or something like that, the payment is, it's a tough one, right? Because there are going to be players the majority of whom that do go back and play. And, you know, the, the flip side of, of trying to stick up for the play, I completely understand and, and think it's completely reasonable that players might not want to go there. Like Carl Anthony Towns' mom, and I know the Timberwolves aren't in it. I'm just using that as an example. Carl Anthony Towns, like there's an NBA player, an active NBA player whose parent died of this virus. So I think it's completely reasonable that players might not want to report. Having said that, you know, the flip side is how fair is it if there are players going there and doing it and then the players that choose not to go are getting paid just like they are, you know, like they're, I think there are fair questions to bring up on both sides. And again, I think this is a whole part of why it is not, you know, it is not the most logical thing for the NBA or any other league to try to play through this. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're doing it because recouping some money in their eyes is better than losing all of it. So, yeah, and I think, I mean, obviously the health concerns are one aspect of this, um, and we're, we're seeing case counts spiking in the state of Florida and several other states that have tried to open back up in recent weeks. But there are other concerns as well. I mean, one of them is that these players are not going to be able to see their families for at least a few weeks. I think that, you know, the earliest that families are going to be allowed to enter the bubble is in the second round of the playoffs, which is seven weeks away. And I think, you know, that's going to be a concern for a lot of players. And and we've also heard that there are certain players who don't believe that this is necessarily the right thing to be doing because of the way that it might distract from the uprising that is going on in the world and specifically in the Black community in the United States. And I think that's... That's a, a totally fair and valid reason as well to to want to sit this out because there are frankly more important things going on right now. Yeah, there is literally a generational movement for positive social change happening right now, and if that is disrupted at all by the return of NBA basketball, then I think the N- return of NBA basketball is doing a disservice um, to the greater community. You know, like I know. One of the arguments when when people wanted sports to come back 
and I don't think you have to agree with it or not, but one of the arguments was any sport, not just the NBA. Like if they come back, it's like a form of entertainment. They're lifting people's spirits mm-hmm. and this. And and while I didn't necessarily agree with with all of that, I could at least understand where that person might be coming from. But now there's so much more going on. And and like we're saying, it, it, it's not just about lifting people's spirits now in the middle of a global pandemic. It's about potentially taking attention away from this generational movement that's happening. And yeah, I think that's a concern for sure. And I think, yeah, to your point, I think there are plenty of players who are probably a lot more concerned about reporting to the bubble for that reason than they are for the health reasons. And also I'll just add as well, like going seven weeks without seeing your family, um, you know, without your senior spouse, without seeing your kids, a lot of these guys have young kids. Like that is not, within the usual realm of being an NBA player, you know, like maybe you go a couple yeah. weeks. Well, none, of this, trip, none, or, none of this, none of this, none of this, you know, course of operations for an NBA player. Nobody right. signed up for this. Um, right. So I think, I think there are a lot of legitimate concerns and, you know, on the health front, I think a point that a lot of people have made is that there is a world in which, you know, they can create an environment where the players are going to be safer inside this bubble than they would be just living in their own homes and communities and going to the grocery store and not being part of this sort of sterile environment. And I think maybe that is fair, but at the same time, it's like if the virus does find its way into that bubble, they're in extremely close quarters and they're playing a contact sport and the possibility of an outbreak and super spreader events becomes that much higher. Yeah. And, but even if they are health wise safer within the bubble, you know, even what I was trying to say, about like they're going seven weeks without their family, like mentally, they're probably not safer, right. You know, from a mental health perspective, and that's going to weigh on some guys, man, you get into this two to three month grind that they're going to embark on. If you spend the first two months or seven weeks of that without any family contact at all, that is going to be rough. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit off air. So, for example, Marcus Aldridge, I think in April, had shoulder surgery that shut his season down. From a basketball perspective, obviously bad for the Spurs, who are one of the teams that are fighting for that last playoff spot in the West, trying to keep their, what, 21-year playoff streak going? You know, trying to, I think. Right, trying to set the all-time record. Um, so, from a basketball perspective, perspective, that's bad. But if you sit back and think about it. Like we were talking off air, you brought up Boyan Bogdanovich, uh, I think having season ending surgery last month or whenever it was, even though the, uh, Boyan on a team that is in the playoffs and, you know, wanted to make some noise. So I think it's worth asking, you know, is, uh, are he and Aldridge maybe an example of a couple of players just taking matters into their own hands and, and almost being like, you know, I'm, I'll end my season myself. <laughs> Not that they didn't need the surgeries. Right. They probably did anyway. I'm just saying, you know, it is a way for them to take it into their own hands. For sure. And I think, not even have to worry about this. I time. think under normal circumstances, it's entirely possible that those players would try and play through their injuries. But I, I think that coupled with all of the logistical complications that we've been talking about, quite possibly nudged those players in the direction of shutting their seasons down because it just doesn't seem like it's worth it to, to try and play through an injury while also having to play through all the adverse conditions that are going to come along with this bubble idea. And I don't know if we'll start to see more of that. I don't know if we'll start to see players coming out and saying that they're just not going to participate. But 
for now, I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'll ask what you think about this, but like the, the players union is represented by star players. And I feel like that's actually worked out in general better for the rank and file than I would have expected it to. Like the max salary is still in place and the league's middle class, I think for the most part is still taken care of. We haven't seen any kind of, you know, civil war within the players union uh, between different factions, star players, role players. Everybody seems to be more or less on the same page. So I wonder if this is something that might represent, I don't know, a breaking point because for somebody like LeBron James or Chris Paul, like those players have made it clear that they want to play and their voices obviously carry more weight than just about anybody else's does. And I don't know if the league's rank and file necessarily feels comfortable with the superstar class speaking for them on this issue when there is so much that is going into it. It's an interesting question because I can't remember if it was last week um, when I was reading about the players voting on this and, and there was, I think it was Michelle Roberts was talking about how like the player, first of all, her communication with Chris Paul is so good and Chris Paul's communication with the players is so good that for the most part, she doesn't even necessarily have to check in on everybody because she can just check in with Chris and knows that he has the pulse of everyone. And, but then, you know, now a week later, we're reading some of this stuff, and it's a, I think it is a fair question because, you know, like every circumstance, everyone deep down has their own motivations and their own agendas, even if it's not malicious. And, yeah, Chris Paul and LeBron James especially, you know, is fighting for something from a basketball perspective that the mid-tier guys aren't when you talk about legacy and, and the true push for championship and all that. So, yeah, I think, I think that's another, you know, potential reason – for concern from an NBA perspective is, or from a players association perspective is making sure all these guys are on the same page. Like it, it's going to be tough. Even, even just like outside of the association, you talk about different factions within teams. Like I got, I was reading about how I think Woj and uh, Zach Lowe both reported it. But so for example, like team personnel that's making the trip has to submit all of their like personal medical records to the team. And then the, I think, it has to be vetted by it. the team then sends it to at least one non-team doctor, like a, an independent doctor, which, you know, none of it sounds like a big deal, but I don't know. What if you then get into a situation where like a high up member of a team says, no, I don't want to share my medical. Like, it, you know, we, we talked so much. We use the words logistical nightmare like a thousand times yeah. over the last three months and talking about trying to get the season rolling. And then this is just another example, you know, something you don't even think about. It's like, oh, what if? executive X on championship contender in it, or just like decides not to travel with his team because he doesn't want to share medical information. Like there, there's so much that has to go into this and, you know, the NBA is hell bent on getting it done and playing in July. And, you know, now it's sounding like July 30th instead of July 31st. But I definitely think, even though I'm, con- I'm pretty convinced that we're going to get there now and there will be NBA basketball in some form this summer, I'm still not nearly convinced that this is going off without a hitch. There's going to be bumps in the road. Mm -hmm. There are probably going to be players who refuse to report. If if one of those players is a star, the NBA is going to have a really hard time reckoning with that and and reckoning that with fans as well. So still so much uh, to figure out in that regard. 
Yeah, I think what we're seeing from the league's perspective is them just trying to limit their liability as much as they possibly can. And, you know, asking personnel to submit their medical records. Uh, Adam Silver, you know, walking back uh, his statement about uh, older coaches potentially not being allowed to be on the bench. And there was a lot of pushback, I think, from a, a faction of older coaches that felt that was ageist. Silver apologized and tried to strike that from the record but i think it's it's all sort of part of the same issue which is that the league knows that there's only so much control that they're going to have over this situation i think that's a scary thing for them and it should be it's a scary situation and every conceivable precaution that should be taken um i think they're they're going to try and take but i think we're seeing the complications of that and at a certain point they're either going to have to say it's you know too many variables or they're going to say look we're going to go ahead with this and do the best that we can but we have to accept a certain measure of liability here yeah well we want to talk about liabilities it was reported earlier this week that uh one of the possibilities they're talking about for next season which of course is supposed to start in and around december 1st when that first came out everyone thought Okay, then, so next season will just get pushed back to mid-July, late July instead of mid-June. And then next offseason would still be a little shorter, but it gets closer to a regular offseason. And then you can start the 2021-2022 season on regular time in October. Well, according to a report earlier this week, one of the things the NBA is considering is condensing next season, still doing an 82-game season, and starting in early December so that it would still end in mid-June like most other seasons which would be batshit crazy because then we'd be talking about more back-to-backs after the NBA has tried so hard to eliminate them. Potentially some four games and five nights again, and we haven't seen that in at least a couple of years. And then we would go from a situation where there's been no NBA basketball for about five months from the end of the lockdown to the start of the season to then being in a situation where we could have an 11-month span where you play 90 regular season games and two full postseasons with more back-to-backs, with four games and five nights, and all flowing into a summer where some guys might potentially play Olympic basketball. That, to me, seems absolutely insane. You talk about a recipe for disaster from a health perspective and a durability perspective. Like, that is insane. 90 games and two full postseasons. What if you're, like, a heavy-minute star on a finals contender and you make the finals back-to-back years? 40 to 60 playoff games plus 90 regular season games in 11 months. Yeah. I mean, I I don't really have much to add. I think it's a terrible idea. (laughs) And I also don't really get it because what I felt like we were hearing when this shutdown happened initially in March was, okay, well, what is this going to mean for next season? It probably means we're not starting until around Christmas. But it's not a big deal because actually there was already a push uh, within the league's board of governors to move the start date of the season to Christmas anyway, to avoid conflicting with the NFL and to essentially give the NBA this window uh, in the summer months where they're not really competing with anything except regular season baseball. And it gives them a chance to kind of monopolize those months. And now we're hearing, no, they want to cram 82 games into what like yeah, less months you know like four and a half months basically and finish the same time that we usually do like no, nothing about that makes any sense and i think this is 
I don't know whether that proposal is actually going to be put on the table, but if it does, this is an example of a time when it's going to be really important for the players union to present the United front. Yeah, absolutely. They should fight like hell against this. I mean, there was already some talk. I think Michelle Roberts came out and said that, you know, the players weren't necessarily on board or at least weren't aware of the fact the NBA even wanted to start next season in early December. I think they'd prefer a little more time right. between this season and next season. So that's a, that's a six-week board... off-season for the teams that make the finals. What's that? That's a six-week off-season for the teams that make the finals. Yeah, and if you count from when camps are supposed to open, it's actually only four weeks. Right. So, but yeah, if the players aren't even keen on starting the season in early December. You think they're going to be keen on not only starting the season in early December, but still finishing it at the same time while playing 82 games? Like, man, you know, forget the logistical nightmares about just getting this season in. There are so many hurdles to clear over the next, like, year and a half in the NBA. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. And I think the the money factor is going to be a big motivator on both sides, too. Uh, I think we've seen, like, you know, you and I have talked about why we think it would be beneficial to shorten the regular season and how we feel like that might improve the product. But I think there's been reluctance on both sides to do that because that means less money for everybody. And so if a shortened season next year means the same thing, then maybe there won't be a pushback from the players union and maybe they will be on board to play an 82 game season. It's just going to be a cheapened product, I think. I think we're going to be seeing way more load management uh, players playing fewer minutes and fewer games. And ultimately, you know, across the board, the product suffering for it a little bit. So I don't know. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But again, uh, the league has taken a big revenue hit this season, even, you know, with whatever they're going to be able to recoup uh, from in theory, because I'm still not convinced that this is necessarily going to happen. But in theory, playing these eight regular season games for 22 teams and then a full playoff slate, whatever TV revenue they're going to be able to recoup, they're they're losing out on a ton of gate revenue and obviously also like the TV money that they're losing from the eight teams who aren't going to be there. So they're, they're already losing a chunk of the pie, and I think that might make them more reluctant to forfeit any amount uh, of additional money for next season. I don't know how avoidable that's going to be, though. Like... Are we going to start next season with fans in the stands? I don't think so. No, no, I don't think. I mean, is, I don't know. Is there a vaccine that's going to be ready by December? I don't think so. It doesn't sound or, like I it. Know. I mean, I can only yeah. speak to what I've read because I'm not, yeah. you know, an epidemiologist yeah. or an immunologist. Newsflash. Like, Neither of us are. Yeah. Um, sorry, sorry to disappoint anyone listening. <laughs> but it, it sure doesn't sound like there's going to be a readily available vaccine come December. So there's a lot still to work out. And I, I think the collective bargaining negotiations and what becomes of the current CBA is still a huge question mark. And and that sort of hovers over all of this stuff. Yeah. I think the unfortunate thing and the unfortunate reality is that um, in pro sports, when it comes to the economics and trying to make up some of this lost revenue, the leagues are looking at it like quantity is better than quality. I think the product will most definitely suffer, but from their perspective, they can squeeze in the quantity. I think they're probably fine. Um, I think I did want to mention on this week, and I know it's something we both want to talk about. You know, LeBron James continues to step up off the court, and and it's been to no surprise. 
know, one of the leaders of the NBA place in this social movement that I talked about earlier in the show. And the most recent example of that is LeBron James starting an initiative. Um, I think it's called More Than a Vote, you know, which plays off his More Than an Athlete campaign and uh, he and a bunch of other really powerful athletes and celebrities coming together we don't know like the full details of how it's going to work or like how exactly it's going to get people to vote but essentially it's to raise awareness about voter suppression um, educate people about voter suppression and try to ensure as many people as possible vote especially in black communities Mm -hmm. and communities in in certain states that have been disadvantaged in a way, in the way the voting maps have been drawn up. So I don't know if there's anything you want to mention about that, but just, you know, a classic LeBron initiative. Yeah. I mean, it's voter suppression is a huge issue and this stuff has really been exacerbated. I think since the Supreme court decision in, I think it was 2013 to essentially gut the voting rights act and allow these States to enforce essentially any laws that they want to restrict people from voting. And that includes closing tons of polling stations uh, and doing so, I think specifically in minority communities and specifically in African-American communities, demanding photo ID, in some cases, multiple pieces of photo ID. Uh, and, and we saw in Georgia, like they just had a primary where we saw people waiting in hours long lineups because there were not enough polling stations. Uh, the voting machines were faulty. And this has been a systematic and targeted effort on the part of, you know, mainly Republican politicians to suppress the vote of minority and specifically black communities. And so I think this is like a really important initiative. And like you said, we don't really have all the details right now of how that's going to operate or what it's going to look like. But I mean, this is something that Tom Ziller wrote in his newsletter yesterday which I thought was really on point. Like when LeBron decides that he is going to commit himself to an initiative like this, he doesn't half-ass it. And I think, you know, if you look at what he did with the school that he created in Akron and how involved he was in that process and how successful that initiative has been, you'll get a sense of, of how real he is and how much he means it. And obviously, he's not the only one who's gotten on board with this. Uh, I think Trey Young is involved and Jalen Rose is involved, Skylar Diggins and a bunch of other athletes who are going to be part of this. So I'm curious and interested to see how it works and how successful it can be, because it's it's like a huge issue that affects all of us, really. Like it, it's um, something that threatens our democracy. So I think, you know, if there was any athlete that I would want to have behind this initiative, I think LeBron James is the guy because of how much weight his voice carries and because of how committed he's been in the past to causes like this. The last time I was in uh, Cleveland for the finals in 2018, after one of the games, uh, we went to this like Mexican restaurant, a bunch of media people, and just talking to different people. And we actually met a fan that had... He was a LeBron fan. He traveled to Cleveland to watch finals from Arkansas, young guy. And we were talking about different stuff. And I don't know, we just got to talk about we're from Canada, he's from the States, we talked about different things. And and we got on, we started talking about the, the whole voting, not necessarily voting rights, but just like things we were reading about. Um, I think at the time, maybe the primaries were coming, or not primaries, but uh, midterms were coming up in the States. And, uh, and he was telling us about, you know, how he hadn't been voting very long. 
but that in the short, in the few times he had voted, because he was still a young guy, he had encountered a lot of these like long lines and stuff. And, and some of his white friends in different neighborhoods uh, in Arkansas had not, never encountered them. And I remember, I'll always remember what he said was that he had never waited less than 30 minutes to vote. And his friends in those other neighborhoods had never, had never even waited close to 30 minutes to vote. And it was just such an interesting thing. Right. And, and, you know, I had already started reading about it, but that really opened my eyes to it. And, and yeah, I think it's absolutely a threat to democracy. And I think the fact that LeBron is, is lending his voice to this and knowing LeBron is going to lend his resources to it and his full effort to it, as you mentioned, I think is huge. And, and look, I, you know, LeBron took a lot of flack for some of his comments in the wake of um, the debacle that happened earlier this year between Daryl Morey's tweet and, and the Hong Kong protest for democracy, um, you know, against China. And, and I think that flack was deserved. I even wrote about it at the time, but you did, there is no denying the impact LeBron has made in his own backyard in the U S in Ohio, in Akron. And when, when he lends his voice, to something, when he talks the talk about, getting involved in a social issue, he absolutely walks the walk. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the young generation of stars in the NBA today seem a lot more, as a collective, socially aware, socially mobilized than maybe the generation before them. I I really believe the example LeBron James has set and his influence, I, I think there's no denying that it's had an impact on this next generation of NBA. You can look at Giannis Antetokounmpo handing out water um, to protesters in Milwaukee and that really powerful short speech he gave um, afterwards about, you know, wanting his his son to grow up feeling safe in Milwaukee. Just, I, I think there are countless examples. I don't want to take away from any of those guys, but I really do think, it, you know, you can look at the example LeBron James has set as a big reason why the NBA has become this league of young leaders. I think that's well said. And I just... I hope that he's able to make an impact with this particular initiative because, like I said, it's it's been a big problem for a while, and I, I think we all have something at stake here, you know, whether it directly affects us or not. So, kudos to him for just getting the ball rolling, and we'll see where it goes from there. Last thing we want to touch on from a basketball perspective um, before we throw it to that interview I, I did with Ryan Sidhu is. You know, everyone's going to be talking about the 22 teams in the bubble and what happens and what doesn't happen. There are eight other NBA teams that are not going <laughs> to play again this season. They might have some like off-season OTAs or mini camps that I don't really think anyone's going to be interested in. But yeah, there there are eight NBA teams not in the bubble that we can still talk about. We wrote a piece earlier this week about trying to find reasons for optimism with all eight of those teams. Admittedly, some were easier than others. Some were painful to try to find reasons for optimism about. Uh, but there was a few that I think you know, it was a lot easier with. So maybe we can talk each, give a team or two from that bubble of eight non-bubble teams that we think could maybe make the leap next year to a playoff team or a playoff contender or at, at least just not being in this depressing conversation again. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the easiest one to start with is the Warriors. It's maybe even too easy because they don't really fall into the category that some of these other teams fall into. They're not exactly a rebuilding team. 
they still essentially have the major pieces in place from multiple championship runs. So I think they're easily uh, the team that's best positioned to bounce back next year and not only be in the playoff conversation, but potentially be even back in the championship conversation. That's going to depend on a lot of things. You know, what does Clay Thompson look like when he gets back? You know, ACL tear is an injury that we've seen devastate careers before. And I think it's a little different for Clay because his game isn't really predicated on. Well, I can say his game isn't predicated on athleticism because it's not like he's a high flyer or somebody who thrives on like open court speed. But a lot of what he does is predicated on athleticism. It's like running around screens, being able to stop on a dime. Um, you know, getting elevation on his, on his jump shot, uh, being able to defend multiple positions, like maybe a lot of that stuff does suffer. And if he's only like 70% of the player that he was before, then this is potentially a different conversation. If he's 90% of the player that he was before and Draymond Green comes back newly motivated after a season in which he either was just plainly dogging it or really isn't the player that he used to be. Uh, I would lean more toward it being the former. So if he comes back and and he's newly committed and Steph is Steph again and Clay is mostly Clay again, then I think the Warriors can be right back in the mix. And especially if you consider that they're going to have, they're guaranteed to have a top five pick in the coming draft. They have the inside track with, it's it's the three worst teams that all have a 14% chance to get the number one pick, right? So I think that's the Warriors, the Cavs, and... And the Wolves. So they have as good a chance as anybody to get the number one pick. They have zero chance of falling outside the top five. And whether they use that pick on, uh, like, I, I don't know anything about this coming class, except that people are really down on it. So maybe that is trash. Yeah. So maybe they, they use that as a trade chip. They also have that Wolves pick that looks, you know, very likely to be a lottery pick next year. And so suddenly maybe they have a chance to put a, a pretty nice trade package together and they can add that way rather than adding through the draft. But either way, they're going to be able to add talent to that three player nucleus that has brought them so much success in the past. Uh, Eric Pascal had a really promising rookie year. So I think, I think they're going to be pretty well positioned to bounce back. And I think also if there is a team in this eight team group that is going to benefit from having nine months off, I feel like it's probably the Warriors. You know that if even if they if these teams do some like mini camp thing in the offseason, they won't be playing meaningful NBA games. So usually, the difference between a finalist and a lottery team in terms of the gap between the end of season A and the start of season B, like the finals team, you're looking at about from mid June, they report to camp in early October. So it's that three and a half months. So usually a finalist is going about three and a half months between seasons and a a lottery team is going five and a half months. So the gap is only about two months. This year, a finalist's gap is four weeks. And one of these eight non-bubble teams are looking at eight months. Like, think about that. The separation is usually two months between a finalist team. And this time it's a month and eight or seven months like that. That is huge, and I don't know who that benefits or hurts more. To be honest, like I don't, you well, know, the I teams think, that make deep run. I think it's telling that a team like the Hawks is sort of clamoring to play, and they've been 
you know, vocal about the fact that they wanted to play and they're disappointed they're not going to get to play because they felt like a lot of their young players were starting to make progress. They feel like that's been interrupted. They feel like those players need reps and this is important development time for them that they're missing out on. Whereas the Warriors, you know, Steve Kerr basically came out and said, like, yeah, we're we're done. Like, we're not playing anymore. We're shutting this baby down. And... I think, you know, they're not in that boat. Like, they do have some young players who I'm sure they would love to get some more reps, but, like, their most important players are veterans. And those players don't necessarily need those kind of reps as much as they just need some time off. And so I, that, that's why I think, like, they stand to benefit from that extended break more than any of these teams. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, the Warriors are the obvious answer for who has the most reason for optimism next season. I will say though, like if Clay loses a step and that means he's getting open three less times a game because, you know, because he just doesn't have the speed or the agility to get through those screens like that, that is those add up over the course of a game. And especially over the course of a season Um, in terms of Draymond. Yeah. I I think I'd agree that it's more of him dogging it. I will say um, probably should stop liking tweets that are ripping Aisha Curry before next season starts. I don't know if anyone saw that, but you might I want to check that out. That that might not be great for the Warriors psyche. Other than the Warriors, I'll I'll throw out the Hawks and the Bulls. Not super convinced about them, but you know, we're trying to pick the best of the worst here. The Hawks, I think it just boils down to Trey Young. I think the dude has the chance to be a transcendent offensive talent. He just averaged 29 points and nine assists in his second season. And he did it very efficiently. I know to, it's going to be a uphill climb to ever build a respectable defense with him on the court, but I think it's possible. You just have to surround him with the right players and find some defensive problem solvers. And I think as long as you have Trey young, you have an inside track to an elite offense as he matures. And, and that already gives you the inside track to a good team. And just his talent level gives you the inside track to being a contender. So I think between him and some of the young talent there, and like Lloyd Pierce, I think the Hawks will get on track. And, and whether that means a playoff spot next year or at least competing for one, I do think out of the East teams that aren't in the bubble, I think they would be my pick to, if one of them is going to crash through next year, it's going to be them. The Bulls, I'm even less sold on. The one thing I like about them, they finally, you know, thinking outside the box for the Bulls meant literally thinking outside the organization. And they finally did that to to remodel their front office. I think the thing with the Bulls is that they're so dysfunctional, but there is a decent amount of young talent there. I don't think there's maybe any blue chippers, but I think there's enough young talent there that you can construct either an exciting team or have some good assets there to uh, continue to build through the draft, find some, like, I just don't think they're as far off as their record and their dysfunction seems. I think there's more talent there than people give them credit for. And they're in the East where it doesn't really take much to get into that race for the seven, eight seed. So yeah, other than the obvious choice of the Warriors, I guess the Hawks and maybe the Bulls would be my picks. What about you? I mean, like maybe you could throw the Wizards into that mix of John Wall. I mean, look, Beal right now of, of those East teams that aren't in the mix, I think you can make a case that Beal is the best player. I mean, it, it's between him and Trey, right? Like, and, yeah. And look, I, I I don't have a ton of faith that John Wall is going to 
come back like gangbusters from an Achilles injury that he suffered when he already seemed to be trending in the wrong direction. But I, I, I don't know that I have that much more faith in the Hawks or Bulls turning it around. The Hawks, I guess, because they're so young and because, you know, they're rookies, DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, I think, did start to play a lot better toward the end of the season. Uh, I like Kevin Herter. And I'm fascinated to see how they can make this front court alignment work with John Collins and Clint Capella. I mean, the thing with Collins is I, I feel like he's best suited to playing the five offensively, but he is sort of caught between positions on defense. And I, he's not really equipped to be like a backline defender playing the five defensively, but I also don't know if he has the lateral quicks to play the four defensively. And that just makes things challenging, especially given the defensive challenges you already have with Trey on the floor. So, I mean, at both ends of the floor, I think it's going to be a bit of a challenge to fit those guys together. Like Capella gives you a sort of backline anchor that I think they need, but also that leaves Collins, you know, chasing stretchier fours defensively, which might not be the best use of him at that end of the floor. And then offensively with Capella there, either, you know, as a screener in the pick and roll and a dive man, or just somebody who's lurking in the dunker spot, that's going to relegate John Collins to spot up duty in a lot of cases. And Collins is a really good dive man. And so does that work out if Capella is there cluttering up their spacing? I think that they're going to have a lot of challenges to sort out with that pairing. So I'm interested to see that. I don't necessarily think it's going to flop. Uh, I just think that it's going to take some ingenuity to work around it. And with the Bulls, like, they had a lot of stuff go wrong this season. Markinen was hurt. Carter was hurt. Otto Porter missed basically the entire season. But I'm still, like, to me, they they still have the same problems they had coming into this season, which is, like, just a distinct lack of playmaking. And I think until they resolve that, their offense is going to be really disjointed. Yeah. I'll say in terms of your Wizards uh, comment that I have, as close to 0% faith, as close to 0 as you can get without it being total 0 faith in John Wall coming back and being an impact player. Um, yeah, I mean, you might be right about that. And and maybe, the, I guess the question is, like, are they going to wait to see what John Wall looks like before deciding what to do about Beal? Like, they... Man, I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Because it's not, like like, his trade value presumably will be the same 20 games into next season as it would be this off season more or less. Yeah. So maybe they wait and they see, okay, is wall the same guy? Like, do we actually have something here or is wall totally washed and we don't have a hope here and it's time to, to get the most out of the trade value that we have with Bradley that we can yeah. right now. Um, Cause they could get a, they could get a haul for him. Oh, that that's, that's the type of, trade that literally resets your franchise and allows you to rebuild Mm -hmm. from the ground up and you know at the end of the day you're going to be trying to find someone as good as Bradley Beal but at some point you got to hit that reset button and yeah maybe 20 games into next season which at this rate might be December 20th because they're going to play 20 games in the first 29th season um might be the way to go but I do agree that they, they should probably at least wait to see what it looks like once John Wall gets back before they make that kind of franchise altering decision Mm -hmm. and then i think the only other team in the west that i really have well there's only two teams in the west who aren't going to be part of (laughs) yeah right so so yeah the only congratulations minnesota yeah um 
and I like I said before, you know, I was talking about the the pick that the Warriors own and saying it's a likely lottery pick because I don't think the Wolves are going to make the playoffs next year. But I do think they could be like a fun and exciting young team that makes some strides. I, and I just sort of feel like I'm a Towns believer, and I know a lot of people have abandoned that ship in recent years. Just given, um, I, I mean, they're I think sort of misguided criticisms about his mentality or him not being tough enough. Um, the way that things played out with the Jimmy Butler situation, I thought fed into that in a really negative way. His dust-ups with Joel Embiid have fed into that in, I think, a negative way. I don't really buy into that. I think he definitely needs to improve at the defensive end of the floor, but offensively, he's about as polished and well-rounded a big man as you could possibly ask for. I mean, this is a guy who was shooting eight three-pointers a game this year and hitting over 40% of them. Uh, true shooting percentage above 64%. A guy who can handle the ball, who can pass, who can play inside or out. Uh, he can post up. He can space it. He can rim run. And I, I just think using that sort of as a, a foundation, as a starting point, should make it pretty easy to construct a really efficient offense. And for all my criticisms of D'Angelo Russell and how, how difficult I think it's going to be for those two to fit together defensively, I think this has a chance to be a really high-powered offense with those two guys at the helm. And I think, you know, we'll see if they re-sign Malik Beasley, who's going to be a restricted free agent, but he gave them some really good production after coming over in that trade. And if you have a, a three-player nucleus that is like a point guard, a big man, and a wing, I think that's a good place to start. It's just obviously those three guys are giving you a lot more at one end than they're giving you at the other. Yeah. They're going to be a, uh, an exciting offensive team and an absolute defensive disaster. I'll always believe in Carl Anthony Towns' talent. Um, I think there was a stretch as well, where his effort on the defensive end had gotten a lot better. And, and in general, he was an improved defender and that, that ceiling for him when he's at least trying on the other end is easily a top 10 player easily. Like the type of player you can build a championship contender around. I just think, I wonder if it really is too far gone with him in Minnesota and just how dysfunctional everything has been there. And I'd almost be willing to like, I think it's just as likely he's not even a Timberwolf a year from now, as it is that they'd be a playoff team next year. Like I think, I I think we've seen this with stars of his caliber so many times Mm -hmm. in franchises, like with franchises like the Timberwolves, where at some point there's a breaking point. And the question is, when is that going to come? Yeah, I mean, for Timberwolves fans' sake, I, I hope it doesn't come next year because he still has, what, four years left on his contract? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. even by today's standards, that would be pretty early to hit the eject button. So, I'm just saying in terms, if you're, if you're asking me, like, okay, there are two potential scenarios. They're a playoff team or he wants out at the end. Maybe he's not actually gone, but he wants out. And which one is more likely by the end of next season? I think I would lean to him wanting out. <laughs> well, I mean, they just sort of bent over backwards to get – his friend D'Angelo Russell onto the team. So it'd be pretty yeah. cold of him to ask out after all that, but I don't know. I mean, definitely the, the defensive concerns are a real thing and without significant improve, improvement from at least one of those guys and arguably both. Uh, I don't know that they have any chance to even be like a top 20 team at the defensive end of the floor, no matter how much I like Josh Koji. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with those teams. Um, 
I don't know who. Apologies. Who, yeah, who are the teams that talk about? The Cavs and two the Knicks and the Pistons. The Hornets, the Cavs, the Knicks, and the Pistons. And uh, by apologies, I mean we're not sorry at all. <laughs> there is no reason for optimism. Although Colin Sexton had a decent last couple months, but I'm excited you know, about seeing Dumboya. Yeah, he he gave the Pistons some good minutes, and uh, but the fact that we're we're even talking about Colin Sexton's last two months this season and Dumboya just shows you how tough it is to drum up optimism about those teams. So yeah, they're the, they're the kind of teams where if you try too hard to drum up optimism, you'll quickly depress yourself <laughs> and and achieve the the opposite results. So I'd say maybe we call it that. Yeah, I'm I'm fine with that, man. <laughs> All right, we'll, uh, we'll take the break, and when we come back, uh, we'll have my interview with Ryan Sadu, the director of True North Inside the Rise of Toronto Basketball. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Scores MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. I am here with filmmaker, director Ryan Sadu, who created the nine-part docuseries True North, Inside the Rise of Toronto Basketball. It was a Webby Award-winning project, and it followed um, some young Canadian basketball talents. Elijah Fisher included among them, one of the top-ranked prospects in the 2023 recruiting class. And it kind of followed them as they navigated their own hoop dreams and also looked at it through the lens of this Canadian and really this Toronto basketball boom and the history of that boom. I included interviews with Steve Nash, DeMar DeRozan, Damon Stoudemire, Jamal Murray, Corey Joseph, Jamal McGlure, Cardinal Official, the musician, among a host of others. So really happy to have Ryan with us today. Ryan, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So it was a nine-part docu-series uh, that I believe came out in 2018. And now, in advance of the one-year anniversary of the Raptors championship win, it's been turned into a 90-minute uh, kind of director's cut with a few updates on the players and some footage of the Raptors parade. So uh, before we get into why you originally did the documentary, um, why did you think it was important to create this this 90-minute director's cut that people could watch around the anniversary of the Raptors championship? To be completely honest, it was really just a a uh, way to experiment with formats okay. in the digital landscape, more so than obviously, uh, you know, kind of commemorating the um, the Raptors win. I mean, obviously, that was a factor, and Canada was very excited about that, and, and we had this project that really captured the spirit of, of basketball in our country, so that was a factor, but... Um, you know, you know, the other piece, the other piece of the puzzle was just, you know, working in the, in the, the digital landscape of today, you could have a series and you could make it a feature. So it was a combination of, of timing, um, as well as just the, the, the format and experimenting with that, which was pretty cool from a filmmaker perspective to, to get to, to cut it into a, a 90 minute feature for anyone who hasn't seen the original nine-part docuseries, you know, I encourage you to check that out, but also check out the 90-minute cut. It's a great watch, especially if you're a Hoops fan in Canada and interested in this kind of boom that's taking place, but also interested in seeing a lot of what goes on behind the scenes to to get some of these kids to where they are. The thing I wanted to ask you is, 
why did you want to do this documentary in the first place? You know, I was looking into your background a little bit and, and you did some work for Vice and you have this master's in media studies. You're obviously a, a media guy and, and an aspiring filmmaker, but what, what about this specific story is something you wanted to tell? Well, my first love was basketball. Uh, in, in my household growing up, basketball was was a, a constant. My dad was a big Laker fan, Showtime Laker fan. So for me growing up, I was, uh, you know, I was I was raised on the, the Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones kind of era of the Lakers and, and then obviously Kobe. So for me, you know, basketball was just a part of my DNA. And, you know, on, on the flip side, you know, filmmaking became a passion. And then, you know, I had a lot of exposure through my parents to, to travel, in different films and documentaries growing up. So I, I just knew at some point in my life I was going to make a documentary about basketball. Like it wasn't it wasn't a question of if, it was just a question of when. And I think, you know, looking at basketball in our country, in Canada, it was um, it was just a, a great moment to tell this story because we had so so many players from Canada going to to the States and, and having success. And, uh, you know, I, I brought it to the national film board and they saw the kind of currency of the project. And then Red Bull got involved uh, a little later. Um, but it, it was really just the perfect time to, to do it and get the financial support. Um, and also I thought I was, I was very uh, intrigued and curious kind of by the cottage industry of youth basketball. And I had a lot of questions surrounding that because of course, you know, growing up, you know, Hoop Dreams was such a, um, you know, paramount film, you know, looking at basketball in the digital age now, um, I was, I was super curious about, you know, these YouTube mixtapes and, and this industry of youth basketball that was popping up. You know, there was a book by George Dorman called play their hearts out, which talked about the pitfalls of AAU. So, um, you know, that was also a really, you know, fascinating element um, uh, that, that, that motivated me to, to also make, make the project to kind of, you know, peek back and see what's going on in this, you know, basketball hotbed, you know, in Toronto. You mentioned being a Kobe fan and then some of the pitfalls of AAU. Kobe's one of the guys that actually used to speak up against that and, and how he thought the AAU system actually wasn't wasn't developing players the right way from like a skill development perspective compared to Europe. And he had some other complaints about AAU in general. As someone that writes about basketball full time, for the most part, I, I I feel like I'm pretty up with with what's going on and how you know the AAU system work and what goes on at that level. But even for me, I still thought the film was really eye opening. So I can only imagine for someone who's maybe only a casual fan and watches this, what they'll take from it. What did you learn putting this together? Either either about the young men that you were profiling, following, or or about the industry in general. Or what did you learn that you didn't know when you first started making the film? It was uh, an eye-opening experience, and it really complicated my relationship with the industry of basketball. You know, I love I love basketball. I love the the essence, the poetry of it, backdoor cuts, and you know, pick and rolls, and, and all of that. So I love the game of basketball, but the industry of basketball is built upon uh, exploitation. It is built upon um, a, a lot of lies that, that get people to buy into certain ideologies and I guess what you what you see is that you know at the top of the basketball industry there's there's the league there's the um, you know there's there's the shoe companies there's the broadcasters and 
basically there's um, you know a, a trickle down from from there all the way down to youth basketball where they're trying to find the next star they're trying to find the next LeBron you know the next Zion the, the next Kobe and and now what's happened is that you know these these mega companies specifically the shoe companies have created super AAU leagues that are invite only to create brand recognition and relationships with young kids um, because they want to ensure that, you know, the, the top kid at 10 years old is going to, when he gets to the NBA, he's going to wear their shoes. Um, so, you know, on the surface, it seems great. Wow, there's these amazing invite-only AAU leagues, you know, Nike EYBL or Adidas Gauntlet, and, you know, kids and teams get flown out, they get free gear, they get to meet their um you know, favorite players, it's all professionalized. But the issue is, is that there is only a finite amount of these dollars and sponsorships to go around. So it indirectly creates a real wild, wild west environment where all of a sudden, because money is involved with young kids who are now the commodity, you have adults whose integrity is compromised because, you know, they're chasing the monetary benefits from the, the shoe companies um, and maybe the kid's interest isn't at hand. Developing that kid isn't, you know, the main priority because the priority is getting the, the, the money because this is now people's livelihood. So, you know, the, the fact that the money has trickled down to this youth level has, has you know, had so many, uh, has had so much collateral damage and so many side effects. And sadly, what you see is that the people who benefit the least at the end of the day are the kids. You might have, you know, one in a million gets to the NBA and then they, you know, recycle that story like, hey, you can make it to the NBA. Zion did it. You can, you can do it. So people buy into that. But, um, you know, you don't really hear much about the stories of a guy like Demetrius Walker. Uh, who who didn't make it are Lenny Cook, right? You don't mm-hmm. hear about the, the stories of kids falling short, and that's actually the majority uh, of the story. So, um, you know, learning all of that really, uh, really pained me and, and really challenged my views of what I think about, you know, being an NBA fanboy, so to speak. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think that's completely understandable. I think, like I said, I think even someone just watching it might come away with some of those same feelings, let alone someone who is, you know, embedded in it and in, in putting it all together. You know, even you talk about the the discrepancy that's created um, by the amount of money the big shoe companies put in to these very, very young teams. And like, I, there were so many moments watching it, you know, and I don't want to give too much eggs and want people to watch it themselves. But, you know, even towards the end when um, one of the Toronto teams is eliminated from a tournament and this team was, you know, a little more um, modest, I guess we'll say. It was, it was a late bloomer that doesn't have the same um, pull or power or resources from these big shoe companies. And the emotional coach after the team loses comes in to talk to these teenagers and and is trying to um, tell them how inspiring they were in this tournament. And and one of the things he says is like, you know, look, we're, we're the only team at this tournament with reversible jerseys. And everyone else is fitted in and fitted on like Jordan brand, Nike and Adidas. And I thought that that's kind of a, a great example of, of what you're talking about where, yeah, you know, obviously at, in any youth sport, you're going to have these discrepancies. Some teams are bigger profiles, some teams are not. But man, when it gets to the level where 
two teams invited to the same tournament. One of them is wearing, uh, re- you know, reversible jerseys from their high school, and the other one is wearing top quality Jordan brand jerseys that professionals would wear. It it really is eye opening. Yeah, it, it's really a world of have and have nots, and um, you know, a, a lot of the times it's it's not necessarily based on merit. I mean. For example, I think the kid you're talking about is Cordell, who's a you know phenomenal player, phenomenal leader, and you know just the way the cookie crumbled for him, he didn't end up um, you know at an at a elite prep school, or he didn't end up uh, you know playing for an AAU team that plays on the shoe circuit, and you know at those AAU tournaments, that's where all of the high major coaches are. Um, so you know I think his coach uh, did a fantastic job, really fighting for him, but. You know, it's it's in Cordell's case, he he kind of had to work twice as hard, or three times, or four times as hard as as the you know the next kid on the shoe circuit. And um, you know, is is that the nature of life that that some people get handouts and, and others don't? Maybe, but you know, when you're dealing with young kids in their future, it was really it was really tough to see, uh, and, and didn't didn't really sit well with me of, of how this is all you know, structured and, and, and playing out for these young men. I think you, you hit it on the head when you said, you know, for, for these big shoe companies, a lot of it is, yeah, they're outfitting these teams, but it's not necessarily about outfitting the teams. It's about hoping that that future star is wearing a swoosh or wearing the three stripes or wearing the Jumpman logo when he is, yet, like literally as young as like 11, 12 years old, so that by the time he's 18, 19, maybe he goes to a college that's affiliated with that brand. And then when he goes to the NBA, that brand has a lot of influence over what he does. It's, um, I think the documentary does a really good job of showing how young that cycle starts. And I know you mentioned, um, just a couple minutes ago, how it's changed your relationship with basketball a little bit and the way you view it. Did it make even like watching the NBA tougher for you? Did it make you less say of, you know, you mentioned growing up a Lakers fan, like, did it make you less of a Lakers fan and more just of like wanting to support the players instead of a team? To be honest with you, it uh, it wasn't until Kobe died that I needed some sort of reconciliation with that, and, and I found that through watching basketball again. But after doing True North, um, I I just became very pro Players Association um, because I just saw it for what it is, and, and it's unfortunately just a cutthroat business. And at the end of the day, you know, regardless of the messaging that comes out from these mega corporations, at the end of the day, you know, if if the top eleven year old kid doesn't make it to the NBA, even though he's anointed at eleven or twelve now, if that kid doesn't make it to the NBA, they are happy either way because this kid is buying the shoes, he's buying the socks, he's consuming the NBA, he's keeping the ratings up. So. You know, I, I know for a fact there's people at the NBA and their job is just to create new consumers. And that's what it's about. If one makes it to the NBA, great. Let's use that story and and get the next generation of consumers to buy in that they can make it to the NBA. And if they fall short, that's fine because they're going to buy all of our gear, keep our ratings high, and, and consume the content. So knowing all of that and then watching, you know, this kind of uh, – knowing the exploitation that takes place and then watching it, it was, I, I didn't really want to have anything to do with it, to be honest with you. And, and like I said, like uh, the Kobe thing really rocked me and, and 
you know, just to kind of personally heal, it was, it was, you know, nice to cheer for the Lakers a little bit. But, but I still have a bit of an icy relationship with with the league, and and you know, really appreciate guys like LeBron who are using their platform and and you know, inspiring change and opening schools and you know, preaching a message that you don't need to necessarily play basketball to get far in life. And what I would love to see ultimately is, you know. These, these companies and leagues spend so much time telling kids that, man, you could be the next, you could be the next MJ. Well, maybe you could be the next GM. You could be the next team pilot. You could be, you know, the, the next, you know, team doctor. Like, you don't really hear those stories. But I, that's what I hope to see is that the league and the company start promoting things in the basketball operations space because you could still make money from basketball. You don't necessarily need to be a player. Um, you know, the industry of basketball is huge and you could have a long career and a successful career and you could still get a championship ring from, from being, you know, embedded on the team from a pilot down to a doctor. So, like, I'd really love to hear that or see more of that happen in, in the future. How long into, well, first of all, what was the process like of actually putting the entire thing together? How long did it take? You know, um, the, the amount of road trips you were taking with the team, but then the follow-up to that was going to be, how long into that process did you start to realize this stuff and, and feel this way and realize like, wow, this is a pretty exploitative business? You know, the, the project took, and there was development, but like production to editing, I, I would say it took about two years wow. to get the project fully out there from development out into the world. And then obviously we did the 90 minute cut, which was its own little process. But, um, you know, I kind of knew, you know, coming from uh, a background where I set, studied, you know, sports and media from a from a kind of cultural studies point of view, looking at how, um, you know, even how announcers describe white players to black players. Uh, you know, I was kind of privy to some of the, uh, you know, exploitation and power structures at play within professional sports. But, you know, there was there was one moment where we were in L.A. and we were at Venice Beach. And uh, we were talking to a, a, a guy who was playing at Venice, and he played pro ball for about uh, you know 15 years in Europe, and, and you know he's you know a legend down at Venice, and, and he was just kind of talking to me uh, about how you know the Drew League used to be you know something for the community and something for the people, and it had its own spirit, and he doesn't really enjoy the Drew League anymore because now it's just branded and monetized by Nike and you have Daryl Morey sitting courtside watching, you know, at the time Harden and, and uh, CP3 play for the first time together when they were on the Rockets. And, you know, that kind of, you know, hit home with me. And at that moment, I started to look at things a little differently and started asking, you know, certain questions. But that was a really big moment for me, hearing it from, um, from that guy down, down at the beach there. Yeah, the Drew League's probably a perfect example of that. In terms of the Toronto basketball boom that obviously the film tells the story of, uh, did anything surprise you there? I mean, you know, you mentioned being a big basketball fan. I'm assuming you already kind of could see the way the industry was booming here, and that's part of the reason why you wanted to do it. But even for someone like you, did it surprise you at all? Like, wow, like the, the amount of young basketball talent this city and this country is now producing is is kind of ridiculous. Well, I think I think that narrative is is so well known now and, and even at the time there was you know articles and newspapers you know national newspapers about it. i think the thing that surprised me the most was that the amount the amount of talent that has always been here and 
you know, that was really uh, fascinating to learn about talking to, uh, you know, David Joseph, Corey's dad and talking to Phil Dixon and learning about these legendary runs at George Brown University. And well, I guess when Danny Ainge was playing on the Blue Jays, he would he would show up to George Brown and <laughs> and, you know, they they would kind of. You know, as a Laker fan, I'd love to hear that he would kind of get beat up there and guys could, you know, hang with NBA players. And, of course, with the development of technology um, and the NBA coming here and obviously, you know, the institution that was Eastern Commerce and all of the success Jamal McGlure had, I think more eyes started coming to Toronto. But, you know, it, it really sounded like there were NBA caliber players here for a long time. And this uh, boom is really built on the backs of these um, kind of basketball forefathers who, you know, whose families or them themselves came over in a wave of general uh, generational immigration in the seventies. So like that was to me, the, um, the part about the talent that I found most fascinating. And, and I hope someone does a documentary, you know, maybe on, you know, Phil Dixon might deserve his own documentary. Those George Brown runs, you know, Simeon Mars, all these guys who have done so much to pave the way, you know, we can only touch on it in the film, but there's, um, you know, there's so many stories of these guys who are responsible for what's happening now. First of all, the Danny Ainge story is great. I mean, I, I'd watch, I'd watch a 30 minute short film just on that, on Danny Ainge playing, uh, guys, George Brown ballers in the eighties. But, um, now I think it's really interesting too, because even in the documentary, like you, you hear some of these older guys talk about how, even though there was that talent here back then, whether it was because of the lack of maybe organization in the grassroots program, there was no NBA team in town, whatever the case may be, like a lot of those great talents in the eighties, as you'll hear in the documentary, are talking about how, you know, at the time they just, they were just playing for scholarships, period, regardless of where that was, Canada, the States, D3, didn't matter. They were just playing for scholarships. And now you take it to now and you see these kids in the film that are great talents. And it's like, if they're getting anything but a D1 scholarship, they're disappointed. And and I think that transition is, I mean, you know, it's it sucks that they feel that way. But I think just seeing and hearing about that transition over the last 30 years in and of itself is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I think you got to give a lot of credit to Ro Russell, who was uh, who, who kind of trailblazed the, the path of, of taking you know, kids from Canada down to the States and, and getting them looks. And I mean, Roe talks about it in the film and I think it's okay to say this, especially in this climate, but you know, the, the Canadian basketball industry, you know, seems at the time back then was run by old white guys. Um, you know, which, which brings, uh, you know, a lot of things to surface or, you know, you know, who's running it? Why are they running it? Uh, are they the most visionary? Do they know what's best for their community? It brings up all these questions, and I think Roe, um, you know, he talks about it in the film. He kind of took matters into his own hands with grassroots, um, and and really kind of laid the blueprint for AAU basketball in, in Toronto. And, and from there, it, it really took off. I thought some of the really cool moments um, were just some of the family moments you captured. To be honest, as someone myself that grew up 
playing a bunch of sports and I, you know, I grew up in a household where uh, my parents immigrants, you know, my sister and I were the first ones in the family born here. So to see moments like, for example, when Elijah and his dad, uh, Elijah Fisher and his dad after a tournament, Elijah has won MVP and his dad's kind of teasing him about how he should have that MVP because, you know, he's the one driving him around and making the sacrifices and paying for stuff. And I, I just think there are so many moments like that in the documentary where if you grew up playing sports, regardless of what your background is, you can really relate to that, you know, like uh, whether it was a parent or a coach, there's so many great coaching moments in the documentary, but whether it was a parent or a coach or a friend or just someone that helped you and that maybe funded you, whatever the case may be, I, I think there are so many moments like that, that so many people that grew up playing sports can relate to. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, you know, for me, sport is just a entry point and way to explore human relationships. Like I don't, I'm not really interested in, in making a highly dramatized documentary about who's going to win the game. Right. right. There's there's people who probably do that better than me. And there's a lot of films out there on that. So for me, it was really, you know, wanting to explore what life was like inside this cottage industry of youth basketball. What are the emotions inside, you know, this this D1 hotbed, this of, of new NBA talent. And, and throughout the film, there was just, um, you know, so many moments between, you know, mother and son with Keon and Donna or, or brothers between Cordell and Quinlan and, and father and son with Elijah and uh, Rohan, his father. And, and those are the moments that when I look back on the film, um, you know, specifically Cordell and his brother in the basement, you know, kind of talking about life lessons or Elijah and his dad leaving that tournament or, or Keon talking about his tattoo um, with his with his mom's name, you know, or that's what his tattoo is. And, and those are the things that, that stick out and stand out to me. And it was just, uh, I guess, special to to be in the moment and, and feel that and, and also makes you reflect, like you said, on, on um, you know, as a kid playing sports, all of those you know, emotions. It was, it was interesting for me because you start to process things for yourself when you have a bit of perspective as an adult uh, about, you know, playing sports as a kid and the sacrifice from family or coaches. So that was that was pretty special to, to be able to kind of time travel in a sense. Yeah. And, and like I said, man, I think you captured those moments perfectly. A reminder to everyone, the documentary is called True North Inside the Rise of Toronto Basketball. I urge you to watch it. You know, our Canadian listeners will definitely get a kick out of it. But I think American listeners, wherever you're listening from, um, if you're a basketball fan and you're interested in, in seeing the journey so many people take, not just to get to the league, but in, in general playing youth basketball and the different machinations that work there, go watch this film. Um, you can find it on redbull.com and also I will post a link to it uh, in the post that houses this podcast. Ryan, thanks for doing this. Before we let you go, let us know, um, is there something else you want people to check out uh, that you recently done? What are you working on next? Yeah, um, well, you could watch, you could watch the... If you want a deeper dive, you could watch this series on uh, the National Film Board's YouTube or Red Bull TV, and, and both of those sites house the 90-minute the version as well. And uh, recently, I just did a short uh, on someone I grew up with named Joey King Handles Haywood, who is kind of, I would say, the, uh, the Stefan Marbury of uh, streetball in China. Um, who's had a really interesting trajectory, but I did a short on him um, that kind of tackles issues of, of race and acceptance in basketball. It's a five-minute short called Down with the King that you can find on YouTube. Sounds great. And uh, yeah, I encourage everyone to watch that as well. All right, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Honestly, thanks for making this film because I think uh, 
you know, whether people watch it as the nine part docuseries, whether they watch it as a nine minute, 90 minute cut, I think there's a lot to learn there. And um, yeah, I think it's an eye opening film. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. And I appreciate the uh, insightful questions. And, and uh, yeah, I hope people tune in and, and learn a little something. All right, thanks again to Ryan Sidhu for joining us today. Don't forget to check out True North, Inside the Rise of Toronto Basketball, as well as his more recent project, Down with the King. For Ryan, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. Pound the Rock.